there are, you know, as we said, there's there's some serious benefits, and not only, you know, can it end up being more more convenient, easier, less burdensome for patients, all of that leads to a faster trial. You get, you know, the fast the trial gets recruited faster, it gets completed faster, and hopefully the drug gets to market faster. So that can yield serious financial benefits for the sponsors, and also, you know, we hope benefits to the public at large in terms of faster access to needed medicines. You're listening to Decoding Healthcare Innovation with Carrie Nixon and Rebecca Gwilt, a podcast for novel and disruptive business leaders seeking to transform how we receive and experience healthcare. Hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Nixon with the latest episode of Decoding Healthcare Innovation. And I am really pleased to be joined today by Laura Podolsky. She is our newest, latest, and greatest addition to the Nixon Gwilt Law team. And she comes to us from her position as general counsel at Science 37. Laura, welcome to the show. And I know you're going to be talking with us today about decentralized clinical trials, a very hot topic, uh, both in the news lately and at the HLTH conference, the health conference that Rebecca and I were at uh, several weeks ago. Welcome, Laura. And will you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and um, about your role at Science 37? Sure. And thank you for having me. So as you mentioned, I, before I joined Nixon Quilt, I was at Science 37 for about six and a half years as the general counsel. I'll talk a little bit about Science 37 in a sec. Um, before that, I was a healthcare attorney at a boutique firm here in LA. And before that, I was working in public health focusing on occupational health and safety. And so I made my way over to law and to healthcare law, and I've been um, happily over here ever since. So Science 37 uh, operates decentralized clinical trials using a proprietary software platform. And decentralized clinical trials are trials that are oriented around where the patient is rather than where the investigator is. So in a traditional trial, what we might call a brick and mortar trial or a traditional trial, everything happens where the investigator is. So if the investigator is at UCLA Medical Center, all the trial activities take place at UCLA Medical Center. The patients come in and fill out forms there, they get their blood drawn there, they participate in assessments there, and, every, and because that's where the investigator is. The challenge with that is that a lot of people don't live near a clinic or a brick and mortar center where trials are being conducted, and they just can't get there very easily. And so in a decentralized trial, the model is oriented around where the patient is. So the patient stays at home, and the trial comes to them through a software application, through visiting nurses, through telemedicine, video conferencing with the investigator and with other trial staff. The investigational medical product or device comes to them where they are. So as much as possible, you're orienting every piece of the trial around where the patient is so that they can stay home. What that does is it enables more people to participate in trials because geography isn't a barrier anymore. They can participate from anywhere. Hopefully, uh, it yields trials where the participant population looks more like the U.S. population, so it's a more representative population of the U.S. or whatever other region of the world the trial is being um, carried out in. And most importantly, not only can more people participate, it's just easier for them. It's less burdensome for patients. They can stay at home. They don't have to reorient their entire lives if they've got other things going on, which basically everybody does, whether that thing is their actual medical condition or family obligations or jobs or school or whatever's going on. So uh, that's, what, that's what we mean when we talk about a decentralized clinical trial or a DCT. And there are gradations. There are some trials that are fully decentralized 
and there are some trials where components of the trial take place in the patient's home and other pieces take place in a clinic, either because that makes more sense or necessarily it just has to. If it's an imaging study or something like this, we have to do that in an imaging center, typically. And Laura, was Science 37 one of the pathbreakers here with decentralized clinical trials? I would say so. When Science 37 got started in 2014, very few sponsors uh, had heard of, when I say sponsors, I mean pharmaceutical companies and biotechs. Very few sponsors had heard of DCTs or and even fewer had engaged in any form of decentralized trial. And at that point in time, there wasn't even a word for it. There wasn't a, an agreed upon term for this. So sometimes they were called remote trials, sometimes they were called virtual trials. Science 37 came up with the term Metasite, and then eventually the industry seems to have settled more on decentralized clinical trial. But you know, it took five or six years to get just to a, a word for it. So I would say when Science 37 started out, the idea itself was really quite new. It had been piloted in a few different ways, but not really end-to-end -end and not using kind of the latest and greatest technology. So I would say, yeah, Science 37 had a lot of kind of learning to do in the beginning to figure out, you know, how do we do these operationally and then what are the legal issues that we have to address in order to carry out these trials in a, in a way that's compliant with, with all the different regulations and laws that, that we need to attend to. Well, and then fast forward to the pandemic, right? And I'm assuming this was one of the only ways that trials could continue um, was by using sort of a decentralized clinical trial platform. You know, we saw telehealth services get a tremendous boost uh, from the pandemic where people were very hesitant, obviously, to go into their doctor's office and everyone scrambled to, uh, you know, to, to put into place a good telehealth program so that they could see their patients uh, during the pandemic. Were regular trial sites sort of scrambling during the pandemic as well? Yep, absolutely. We saw some trials that were already in progress when the pandemic started having to shift to a decentralized model in order to continue. We had some trials that were about to start in a traditional model before the lockdown hit and then had to quickly shift to operating in a fully decentralized model. And then we had some trials that, you know, needed to decentralize certain components of it and then had to preserve certain in-person or traditional uh, components as well. So yeah, there was a big uptick in interest and acceptance kind of by necessity in the same way that we saw with telemedicine uh, with, with DCTs. So our... Are decentralized trial companies, clinical trials com companies, experiencing the same sort of questions that, um, that, that have come about around telehealth? So, you know, are people saying decentralized clinical trials are here to stay? The genie is out of the bottle. Is this something that's going to continue post-pandemic? Or will drug companies and device companies and researchers go back to business as usual pre-pandemic? I mean, I think it'll be a mix, frankly. I think the fact that there's been such widespread embrace of telemedicine, and not just because you have to, because but now it's shifting towards a lot of people just like it. They feel more, it's easier for them. It reduces the anxiety around a doctor's visit if they don't have to actually get there and park and, and deal with all the kind of logistics of mm -hmm. it. And so that's one component is that, you know, before the pandemic, before a wider adoption of telemedicine, one concern sponsors had about the DCT model was whether patients were going to be comfortable participating in a trial through a, through teleconferencing with or excuse me through video conferencing through an app with home nursing and so on and the embrace of telemedicine during 
the pandemic showed us that, yeah, people are, are fine with that. They like it. In some cases, they prefer it. And so that kind of gives a boost to um, DCTs or, or I think kind of enhances the foothold of DCTs because it's part of something that's already happening on a wider scale. Generally, medicine is moving to the home. This is just part of medicine moving to the home. Yeah, a natural, so yeah, natural part of the transition. That's exactly yeah. right. I mean, I can tell right. you from personal experience, I, um, I attended a doctor's appointment in, in advance of potentially participating in a trial, um, you know, several weeks ago. And the whole experience of getting into this academic medical center and parking in a huge parking lot with construction, it took me like 40 minutes to get from the car, you know, like from pulling into the parking garage into the office. I thought... Mm -hmm this is terrible. I don't want to have to do this, you know, all the time. And so the notion uh, of a decentralized clinical trial seemed like a no-brainer to me. Right. And yeah, I think people, I, it, it is easier on patients. It makes it easier for them to join the trial in the first place and easier for them to comply with all the requirements that they, they have to go through during the trial. So it increases participation and it decreases attrition. Right. Those, those alone are big selling points. And I think during the pandemic, uh, DCT operators like Science37 and others were able to kind of prove out that advantage and also do it across some very rocky terrain. DCT operators face a lot of the same challenges as any other company, you know, shortages of supplies, uncertain travel opportunities, um, just general fear and anxiety about having folks come into the home and, and figuring out what are the best safety protocols. And in the midst of all that difficulty and uncertainty, they were still able to operate these trials. And so I think the combination of acceptance of, of telemedicine, the fact that DCTs really are easier for patients, and that companies have shown they can actually do it under not ideal circumstances even, are all for the to the you know cut cut in favor of DCTs being with us for a while. Yeah, so so those feel like very obvious and unquestionable benefits. Are there drawbacks to decentralized clinical trials? Sure. I mean, I think that, first of all, not every trial can be a decentralized clinical trial. It just doesn't work for every single model, and that has to be acknowledged. I think also, while decentralized clinical trials are most likely easier for participants, it doesn't mean that they're easier to operationalize. I would say they're harder to operationalize. Because if you think of it as, you know, in a traditional brick and mortar site, everything is under the same roof, more or less. And so if you think of all those different participants under that brick and mortar roof, take them and distribute them across the country, potentially across the world, and try to have a seamless participant experience in the trial, that's challenging. Yeah. We have to make sure the drug gets to the person on time. We have to make sure the nurse gets to the person on time. We have to make sure the person gets home from work on time to receive the drug and be there for the nurse's visit. Mm -hmm. So there, there are a lot of logistical challenges involved in bringing the, the trial to the patient. So all the things that you described, parking, getting into the in, across the construction site, into the office, all of these things, that kind of gets that gets absorbed by the DCT operator. Yeah, it's, it's shifting the burden. Right. It's shifting the burden, right? Yeah. Yep. So, so that, that can be challenging. It can be costly. But there are, you know, as we said, there's, there's some serious benefits. And not only, you know, can it end up being more, more convenient, easier, less burdensome for patients, 
all of that leads to a faster trial. You get, you know, the, fast, the trial gets recruited faster, it gets completed faster, and hopefully the drug gets to market faster. So that can yield serious financial benefits for the sponsors. And also, you know, we hope benefits to the public at large in terms of faster access to needed medicines. Great. So as I understand it, there are some peripheral entities that are involved um, in supporting decentralized clinical trials, like mobile nursing agencies, like patient recruitment companies. Can you talk a little bit about the role of those supporting entities? Sure. So a DCT operator has to decide which parts of a trial it's going to do itself and which parts it might be outsourcing. So in a typical decentralized clinical trial, um, you may have visits to the home um, that are carried out by phlebotomists or nurses. And so the operator has to decide, are those people going to be our employees or are we going to work with a third party agency, either a home health agency or another kind of agency? Uh, similarly, are we going to ship the investigational medical product ourselves, meaning house it and ship it, or are we going to work with a third party um, vendor to do that? So that's an example. Um, most DCT operating systems have some kind of software involved. So there, you have to ask yourself, are we going to develop that in-house with our own team of developers? Do we have that capacity? Or are we going to outsource that? And so there are a lot of potential third parties who are involved in putting together the, the DCT. And that can, you know, that can be challenging, of course, just it's a lot of coordination, a lot of contracting, and a lot of decisions about how to distribute risk. Um, but it also creates a lot of opportunity. And so if, if you're a company who's interested in getting involved in DCTs, if you think you have something to contribute to, to DCTs, either a service or a product, what I would say is it's really important to learn about DCTs. And thankfully, there are plenty of opportunities to do that now. We're seeing so many webinars and articles and such about DCTs. So if you are a company thinking that you could contribute to this space, I would take the time to, to learn about it and then be able to say, this is what we can do to make this easier. This is our solution. This is how we can you know, improve this process or this, this part of the patient experience or this part of the investigator experience, quite frankly. Yeah, I and think so it's, the, it's really important to study up and know, know your market, know who you're going to be partnering with. Yeah, I mean, I would say um, it, with in my experience at Science 37, you know, especially in the very early days, Science 37 was explaining to vendors and to sponsors what a DCT was. So we were you know, trying to engage folks to help us operate these trials, but they had no idea what they were. And that's okay. It was early days. But at this point, there's enough information out there that a vendor who wants to get involved, whether it's a nursing agency, somebody involved in the supply chain in terms of investigational medical product, transportation, frankly, could be an issue too mm -hmm. um, for nurses and such. Uh, they've got a lot of opportunities to learn about it, and I would just encourage that to learn about it and come to the operators with some ideas about how you can help, you know, what value you provide. Yeah, that's good advice. So you mentioned just a moment ago uh, mitigating risk, and my suspicion is that there are some interesting privacy considerations around decentralized clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about those and how companies deal with them? Mm -hmm. Sure. So. There are a couple different ways to look at this. And you know, similar to how many different potential vendors and inputs and, and kind of little uh, widgets there are involved in, in operating a DCT, there are that many different types of privacy questions. So there are privacy things related to the software that you're using, making sure that the software application that you're using has been built with a privacy by design mindset. There are a lot of fantastic software engineers out there, but not all of them are familiar with 
requirements like those under 21 CFR Part 11, which sets forth um, requirements for um, electronic signatures and electronic records in the clinical trial context. Well, you know, that a fantastic developer just may not have had experience with that. Or they may not be quite as attuned to state uh, privacy laws or ex-US privacy laws. And so making sure that the software that you're using reflects uh, an awareness, uh, not just an awareness, is compliant with all of these different requirements is, is huge. And a lot of those are, are data privacy requirements. Some of them are security requirements, but, but those are related. So I'd say thinking about software and, and this, you know, the fact that data integrity is so, you kind of have two things. Data integrity is so important in the clinical trials context. And from a privacy perspective, a lot of the data is highly sensitive. Absolutely. Medical information. So we need to make sure that both this privacy and the security of the data are protected as it moves through the software. There's a huge, uh, you know, human error potential here. You've got a lot of people who are involved in operating a decentralized trial. This is not a situation where technology replaces people. It's a, it's a situation where technology connects people, but you still got lots of people. You've got nurses in the field, you've got doctors in all over the place, you've got clinical research coordinators, you know, recruitment folks. There's just a lot of people who are interacting with a lot of information. And so making sure that everyone, top to bottom, east to west, is trained and, and aware of the importance of maintaining patient privacy and other types of privacy, I think is, is really important. Um, another thing is, again, related to privacy is, if you are, you know, one of the great promises of decentralized clinical trials is the, the, the ability to recruit from anywhere. That also means you have to comply with the privacy laws of all these different jurisdictions, whether they're states, if you're operating just in the U.S., or, you know, whatever geographic entity or political entity you're talking about, ex-U.S., if it's a specific region of Germany that has specific, you know, patient privacy uh, rules and requirements or a whole country. And so that can be challenging, just figuring out, you know, how to comply with, with all of those. And some of that involves saying, you know, making a calculated risk, too, sometimes, and saying, we're going to do our best, but these laws are changing. Technology is moving faster than the law, but the law is also changing, not always in the direction of technology. And so, you know, how are we going to do our best to meet the best, you know, the highest standards we can while remaining agile? And so it, I think it's challenging. I think, you know, when I'm advising on data privacy in this context, I think it's helpful to look at uh, the principles underlying the GDPR. So they're like, there's these seven principles that underlie the GDPR, the lawfulness, fairness and transparency, that's one, purpose limit, limitation, data minimization. I won't go through all of them, but there's some good general principles and most privacy laws are trending towards those. Like that's kind of the North Star for privacy. So if you are making a sincere effort to comply with those, that's good. That's a good start. It's not the end because different countries emphasize different pieces of that differently or, you know, have different solutions to those challenges. But it's a start and making sure that everyone in your organization who is interacting with patients and who's designing software and who's also, you know, responsible for other operational heavy lifting, making sure that they're attuned to that, I think, can be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, the privacy landscape is ever evolving, ever changing, and I'm sure that, you know, folks involved with decentralized clinical trials uh, have their hands full in keeping track of it all and just being sure that they are always operating with best practices. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my suspicion is that there are a lot of investors who are very interested in decentralized clinical trial companies these days. 
Um, I know we've got a, a lot of investment happening in the digital health space in general, mm -hmm. and DCT, I think, um, is towards probably the, towards the top of the list there. So in your mind, what would an investor be looking for during the due diligence process for investing in DC, a DCT company? So in my experience, there are a number of different things. We just talked about data privacy. That's such a hot topic. Investors are aware of the importance of it, and they want a DCT operator to be able to show proactively how they are meeting the, the highest standards for data privacy. The risks of a, data, of a data breach are so significant. Nobody wants to touch something that if you can't guarantee to the best of your ability that it, you know, patient privacy is protected, we're not going to have a big leak, it's not going to be you know, a tremendous disaster. So patient, data privacy, I think, is huge in being able to demonstrate all the different steps that you've taken to ensure data privacy and data security. Uh, it would be a, would a huge one. Related to that, to show how your solution, however you're operating DCTs, complies with federal regulations around clinical trials, I think is really important. The FDA is certainly interested in DCTs and has taken a lot of time to study the options and think about different types of guidance that it might provide, but the regulations themselves have not changed. And so being able to explain to an investor, this is how we comply with FDA requirements, and we are not going to get shut down by the FDA because of X, Y, and Z. I think that's, a, that's an important risk, and, and if you can mitigate that risk and demonstrate how you do it, that's huge. I think, and this is hard for new companies, I think having a track record and being able to say, we, not only do we believe in this, we know it. We, we think this is, this is a good idea that we've actually practiced, that we've actually run through, that we've actually, we've run this play. And, and to have a track record, and some of that, you know, you might need some, some investors who are ready to take a, to walk that road with you and, and take that risk with you, but, you know, being able to say, yes, we've, we've worked through these different scenarios and we have that experience. I think that's, that's important as well. Yeah, we've been in the trenches. We know what we're dealing with. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, Laura, you are a, a wealth of, ex of uh, knowledge in this area for sure and knowledge and experience. And so, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on, uh, you know, who can best benefit from, from the type of expertise that you have. You, you are this um, bank of, of knowledge and expertise and, uh, you know, this is a really interesting area right now. What, what kinds of people are, are most interested in this? I think we're seeing a lot of interest from companies that want to operate decentralized clinical trials. There are, are more of them coming up and you know, each having a slightly different perspective and but wanting to be, say, you know, how can we how can we mitigate the various risks that are involved, the ones that we know and the ones we haven't experienced yet. And so having kind of been in the trenches of this for you know over six years, I, I've had a lot of experience in that realm and I you know would love to share that experience. I think also companies we talked about, you know, different types of vendors who might be involved in DCTs and to be, you know, so for folks who are thinking about that this is an, an area that they want to get involved in and where they want to be offering services or products, um, I think that, you know, that's something we can talk about. Um, there are some specific questions that I, you'd want a vendor to be able to answer if you are operating DCTs, and I think that we can provide, we can provide guidance there. And I think also, you know, DCTs provide a lot of opportunity for uh, physician groups um, to get involved in clinical trials. It, you don't have to be a clinical trial shop 
to be involved in decentralized clinical trials because much of the infrastructure is just outside of your, your building. So you need to have time and willingness to train and to engage, you know, and be a PI or a sub-I, a PI, a principal investigator, a sub-investigator. But it's not the same as this becoming your full-time job. And so for physicians or physician groups who would like to get more involved in clinical trials, I think DCTs offer them a lot of opportunities too. And, and you know, I'd love to talk through the different options for folks who are interested in that. Yeah, that last one is, is fascinating. I hadn't really thought about that, but it opens up opportunities for physicians, you know, who are in private practice rather than sort of being affiliated with, with a medical center or mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. And for their patients, that's, that's mm -hmm. a, it's a really neat opportunity. I think patients, you know, trust their their mm -hmm. um, family physician, their own physician, and, and if their physician suggests a trial, um, mm -hmm. someone who knows them well, they're probably more likely to to participate, especially if it's easy. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I understand that you have created actually sort of a checklist um, to be helpful to decentralized clinical trial um, companies that really talks, um, uh, really goes through some of the, is it just legal considerations or is it considerations as a whole? Or a little bit of a mix of both? I, I would say it's a little bit of both because when we're thinking about what are the legal issues involved in DCTs, there are some real basic ones about, you know, complying with the federal regulations around clinical trials and uh, state laws around, you know, medical information or doctor-patient relationships and things like that. All, the, all, all laws and regulations that pertain to the practice of medicine also pertain to physicians who are operating as investigators. The licensing boards don't distinguish between, uh, you know, interacting with a patient in the context of a clinical trial and interacting with a patient in the context of a, a regular clinic visit. And so um, there's, you know, there's some obvious like laws and regulations that we need to attend to. And then there's just a lot of risk. And so, you know, thinking about how do we mitigate these risks so we don't have legal issues, which were going to be probably contractual issues, um, that's, that's kind of what the checklist is aimed at, at helping people think through. All right. All right. So we are going to provide that for our listeners in the, um, in the notes, the show notes, that's what they're called. And you can look for that there. Uh, Laura, I appreciate this conversation so much. You have um, really been a valuable addition to our firm here, and I appreciate you as a colleague, and I really thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right, everyone, we will see you on the next episode of Decoding Healthcare Innovation. In the meantime, feel free to share our link on social. All right, till next time. Mm -hmm.